0: Thank you, worship team. Let us pray together before we read the scripture. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our reading today comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, And it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, what a difficult passage today. I'm sure everyone here and online was thinking, yes, I'm ready to hear the word of Lord. Tell me to love the most difficult person in my life. That's exactly what we were waiting for, right? And even though I could have probably preached five or six different ways on this passage, there's a lot in this text. I felt the Lord speaking to me to go in this direction. That you'll see but before I go there I want to make sure that we do not hear that we should allow ourselves to be used or abused so please if anyone listening today is being abused physically mentally or sexually or find yourself in a situation of being harmed please know that that is not love and that is not what Jesus wants for you That is not what loving our enemies looks like, and that's also not loving ourselves, and it's not what God wants. So if you're experiencing any sort of abuse or harm and need to talk to someone, I encourage you to reach out to somebody that you trust, to reach out to one of our pastors. We have resources and connections and can even recommend good therapists. I just wanted to say that before I get into the message. Because, like I said, this passage of Scripture is very difficult. And it's also been used in the past, unfortunately, to humiliate and belittle people. But that's not Jesus' way. This isn't a new rule book or a to-do list or a checklist to get into heaven. We're not writing our resumes for God, saying, here we go. This passage is about the Spirit. This is about what God is like, God's character. So before we even think about the meaning of these words, we need to understand Jesus and who Jesus is and how Jesus acted. But that's difficult as well because isn't that the whole reason we come to church? I hope so, right? To get to know how to be more like Jesus. How do we become more like Jesus? Well, here's something I do know about Jesus. Jesus was the biggest advocate for the oppressed. He spoke for and fought for and gave a place at the table for people who were seen as broken, as unimportant, as unclean, as marginalized, outcast, shamed, considered less than human, unequal. You see, Jesus, he saw shame and replaced it with love. He saw the lines drawn in the sand and stepped over them. He saw the treatment of those made in God's image and returned their beautiful humanity. He saw acts of injustice and exploited those acts. And he saw barriers and tore them down. And over and over and over in the Gospels, Jesus restores people. He restores them to their communities. He preserves their humanity and he mends their relationships. You see, Jesus was very countercultural in the day because he liberated people from whatever enslaved them. And in these acts, the presence of salvation, of the kingdom of God, was at work as people were freed this was who Jesus was. Jesus was an advocate for the oppressed and the broken and the beaten. And Jesus brought the kingdom of God near here on earth for everyone to see. And this idea of forgiveness that he's preaching is radical and powerful, and it runs against everything we think, against our desires, Against our inclinations and even against our will. You see, the kingdom of God is not accomplished by violence. Forgiveness, however, does not condone the act. You see, rejection of violence is not the same as being passive. Jesus is actually teaching an assertive and confrontational, non-violent way for someone to be given the opportunity to transform. This Jesus, this radical Jesus way, gives the oppressed person the potential to take control of the situation, to remove the cloak of shame that was put onto them, to take the power away from someone who dehumanizes them and reveals the evil that is happening. You see, this passage of Scripture is, can very easily be misconstrued, misinterpreted. But if the abuser or perpetrator does not understand that their actions are wrong, turning one's cheek could send a message that the violence is justified. It might appear as an acceptance of guilt or approval of punishment. Therefore, in certain circumstances, turning the other cheek is actually perpetrating abuse. And how on earth would that be good news to somebody, to us? So I want to dive into some more historical context. In verse 29, when it says, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. We've heard this before. It's in the Gospel of Matthew too, And in Matthew, actually, it states that if someone strikes you on the right cheek, you offer the left cheek. Have we ever thought about why? Why those particular sides? Well, it turns out, from a lot of research I've been doing over the week, that the turning of the cheek was actually an act of rebellion and resistance. You see, in the culture back then, hitting someone's cheek was done with the left hand backhanded. So you know, you know, visually, think about it, right? Because I had to do this a few times to myself, which is a bit weird when you're trying to slap yourself. But you got your left hand. The left hand back then was actually for unclean tasks. So they wouldn't have used the right hand. They would have used the left hand. And a backhanded slap, which you can only really do with your left hand on the right cheek, backhanded, or else it would look really, really awkward otherwise was supposed to signify humiliation. Humiliation. And was usually done from someone with a higher status, a superior, to someone with a lower status, an inferior. It's backhanded slap. So what happens if you turn the other cheek and your left one is now showing? they can't slap you anymore with the back of your hand or their hand. You see, they are given two options then, this person. They can either slap you backhanded with their right hand, which is considered the clean hand. Or they can hit you with a fist. And back then, hitting with a fist actually symbolized that they thought you were of equal status to them. So you see, what's actually happening here is that the the abuser, the person slapping, didn't want either of those options on the table. They wanted the humiliation. So turning the other cheek then, the person who's turning the other cheek, who was being hit, was actually showing that they refused to be humiliated. It's a type of defiance. And it took the power to dehumanize and humiliate away from the abuser. And it empowered the oppressed person, the inferior person. Verse 29 continues, and then it goes on to the coat. From anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Again, here, historical context helps us understand what's actually happening. You see, in Jesus' time, the law actually allowed a creditor, you know, someone who loaned money, um, to take the coat as a promise of future payment from a poor person without the means to pay this debt. Usually it was a coat because... If it was someone who couldn't pay this debt, that was the last thing they most likely owned. The robe that they wore. However, back then, the wealthy creditor had to return it in the evening so that they could sleep in it. They had to return it in the evenings because it was literally the only thing they had left. So when Jesus is saying, you know, don't withhold your shirt. You see, in that society, the shame of nakedness was real. I'm sure here we can still kind of relate to that. Nakedness was a shameful act, but it actually fell more on those viewing it and those causing it than it did on those who were actually naked. Thus, stripping off the undergarment in a public setting of the court along with the required outer garment would have the same effect as turning the other cheek, flipping the tables, giving power back to the powerless, letting the poor person be in charge of the situation, and exposing the injustice of the system. You see, these are not passive responses, but nonviolent resistance for oppressed people. Jesus is teaching nonviolent ways in which the powerless are given power, the oppressed take initiative, and the marginalized are affirmed in their humanity, and the exploitation and abuse are exposed and neutralized. These words of Jesus put the listener of these words in a position of power, not worldly power, don't confuse the two, but the power of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus experienced all of this. The cheek, he was struck. The coat, they tore away his robe before he was put on the cross. And how did Jesus respond? He asked God to forgive them while he was dying, while he was in agony. You see, Jesus cared even for these people, even for us. And Jesus wanted to see them whole and filled with the Spirit, wanted to see them in his Father's glory, redeemed, liberated, What a Jesus way to live. You know, three words I want to define for us. The first word is equality. Now, many of us might already know these words, but I want to just give you the dictionary definition of these words, very simply. Equality is the state of being equal, especially in status, rights, and opportunities. Next word I want to define is equity, the quality of being fair, and impartial. And a third word is liberation. The act of setting someone free from imprisonment, slavery, or oppression. The act of release. Wow. No more barriers. No more fences. No more walls that we can't see over. No more us and them and them and us and no more others. This is the kingdom of God. I want us to see this glimpse of the kingdom of God. I mean, don't we long for a kingdom without barriers, where everyone is welcome and everyone participates in building up the kingdom? You see, by removing barriers, we are brought into this life of liberation. And not only do we see the kingdom of God, but we participate and help build this kingdom here on earth. You see, loving our enemies is about liberation. For the oppressed and the oppressor. For all people. This is what true freedom looks like the kingdom of God is not a kingdom in the sense we might think but the kingdom of God is actually an abundance of grace an abundance of love an abundance of mercy it's an overflowing place of liberated people This is a way to participate in God's healing of the world. Kingdom healing. Kingdom loving. You see, God's love is not only equal. God's love is not only equitable. But God's love is liberating. It frees us. God loves us while we are still sinners. God loves us while we are still enemies with God. God loves us not because of what we have or haven't done, achieved or haven't achieved or claimed to be, but because of who God is. God loves us. It's God's character. And God loves us in abundance in overflowing and that is the good news of the gospels that is the good news that jesus brings you know let me tell you about a woman who was sexually abused as a small child i said i'm sorry this is really heavy but i'm also not sorry you know she never told anyone until she was an adult For various reasons, some of them were due to to shame, some of them were due to fear, but also because we live in a society and a culture that tends to blame the victim, that tends to say, well, maybe they were in a, a circumstance that they put themselves in, maybe they contributed to what happened to them. You know, we need to stop doing that. We need to start believing these people who have been abused in the past or present. We need to stop making excuses, and we need to just listen. You know how powerful the act of listening is? if we just sit down and listen to people's stories, you not only learn a whole lot about them, we learn a whole lot about ourselves in that process. Listening to their their hurts and their pasts, listening to their presence, listening to their futures, listening to their disappointments, their hopes, their doubts, their beliefs. Just listening. See, if we don't listen to the hurt of this world, how can we bring good news? And I really encourage all of us to think this way. It's a challenge for myself as well because, you know, when reading the Bible, we need to ask ourselves how is this good news? How is this good news to the child who is exploited? How is this good news to the man beaten for the color of his skin? How is this good news for the woman walking out of an abortion clinic? How is this good news for people without homes or food? How is this good news for a broken family or those suffering from abuse, for those struggling with mental illness, for those being treated like they are not enough? How is that good news? We need to listen and read through a lens of God's love. We need to be advocates like Jesus and walk with these people in their hurts and brokenness and say, God sees you. God sees your value and God sees your worth and God loves you. Sorry, I got a little bit off topic. This woman I was talking about, I'm going to call her Maria. Maria. That's not her real name, but I'm gonna call her Maria. So if you know a Maria, it's not who you, uh, you think. <laughs> you know, I've walked with her as she slowly began opening up about her abuse to her family, to her therapist, to me, and eventually to the police. And let me also say that by opening up, someone who opens up who has experienced trauma is reliving that trauma. So if someone is opening up to you about their trauma, you need to know what it costs them to speak about it. Just saying. So what amazed me most about Maria is the abundance of God's grace and love that she held. Even among the feelings of unworthiness and brokenness and feeling damaged and weak. She exhibited more grace and love and mercy than I've seen in a long time, if ever. And I can't do it justice, so I have her permission to actually share her words with you. So this comes directly from her. She says, oftentimes, the situations in which we're asked to live out these scriptures, are not easy. Because hurts are so deep, and because trauma is real, and reconciliation seems impossible. Because doing good doesn't always feel good. I know, a few months ago I made the decision to bring out of darkness the abuse I suffered as a preteen and teenager. I eventually met with a detective for an evidentiary interview and a statement in the criminal investigation now ongoing into the abuses this person perpetrated against myself and others. None of it feels good. I've been accused by some of speaking up only to seek revenge or retribution, of doing so to only ruin my abuser's life his family's life. But I can tell you that after many years of personal healing, thanks to a whole lot of Jesus and some really good therapy, I do love my enemy. I do love his humanity and his equal value as a child of God. I do forgive him and believe wholeheartedly that heaven is big enough for both of us I desire to meet him there one day, both of us having found wholeness in Jesus. I firmly believe that is possible, but that wholeness cannot be found without truth or without accountability, without confronting the wrongs done. My friends, that is what loving our enemies looks like. That is what grace and goodness looks like. It looks like seeing God's image in their faces and praying and hoping that they will take the opportunity to genuinely repent and come back into God's grace. Wow. Those were her words. That's tough. That's tough. We see Jesus as an example of what forgiveness looks like when he hangs on the cross. But sometimes it's even more powerful to see people here today going through horrendous things and expressing. And showing the same forgiveness that Jesus showed. You see, we tend to not talk about this stuff. We tend to not share these kinds of stories because we know how heavy they are. Sometimes we just don't want to think about it. And yet hearing the words that Maria spoke, it just floors me. It fills me with hope and joy and even more love. Because what she's saying is that God built a house with many rooms. And there's so much to share that we can all live in this kingdom together. Abundant space. God's abundance. And this great reward that's mentioned in the scriptures is not about prosperity. It's about grace and love and transformation that our radical Jesus gives us. You see, Jesus knows that we will never love our enemies without the amazing grace and love that transforms us. We sang it earlier. Not I, but Christ in me. What changes us and allows us to love is a grace that is greater than us. It's greater than our intentions. It's greater than our hurts. And it's even greater than all the hard work that we try to do. It's the grace of the Holy Spirit. God's spirit. And the listener of these words, which is us, we are the listeners. We model our generosity after this mercy from God. And our generosity comes from this place of abundance. We give not from a position of oppression, but as people who are already sharing in the riches of God's kingdom and everything that God offers. The expectation of payment is not coming from the person being given something, but from God, because our reward comes from God. This is the abundance of the kingdom. You know, this passage can very simply become just an ethical list of demands that we do, but that doesn't further justice and wholeness and shalom. The image of the kingdom. The beginning of the garden. So this passage must be read understanding that the abundance of God's grace and mercy and love is overflowing to all of us. Turning the other cheek isn't passive, it's an act of resistance to evil. And this act of resistance has the power to transform others... And it has the power to transform the world. This nonviolent, aggressive way of living is a powerful way in which Jesus lived. And Jesus' ultimate act was dying upon the cross. So let me ask do we see the cross as weakness, as a passive act? Or do we see the cross as a powerful act of resistance to the world's norm and expectations? A shame-filled act redeemed by its exploitation. The Greek word for bless in verse 28 is eulogio, and I'm very bad at Greek even though I used to preach at a Greek church. Because I can't do that throat thing that they do. Can't do it. Elohio. And actually what this means in Greek is to invoke God's blessings upon a person's welfare. As God perceives it to be. So basically to pray for someone and give their actions in life over to God. God will see fit their reward just as God will see fit our reward. God will see to their portion as God will see to our portion. You don't have to worry about their portion. But invoke God's blessing upon them. Give to God what is God's and let us all participate in this kingdom healing and loving. To do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. To empower those seen as less than. As the worship team comes back on stage, remember, Jesus was the biggest advocate for the oppressed. Where we shamed, he loved. Where we drew lines, he stepped over them. Where we treated people as less than God's image, he showed beauty. Where we enacted injustice and oppressed people, he exploited those acts. Where we built barriers, he tore them down. And when most wanted revenge, he loved his enemies. This is living abundantly as liberated people of God. Thank you, worship team.